Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Brothers, one of, the, one of the guys in that band has a show here at Heritage. I, I forget his name, but he's from Oklahoma, and he's six four, and he's rail thin, and he's got hair halfway down his ass and a beard. God damn! He got out. <laughs> but he got out, and he's in Bushwick now, where he fits right the f in. Um, hey, uh, we're gonna get quickly into the show today. I got a couple of great uh, guests. My first guest is going to be Chris Struck, and we're gonna talk about guess what? Guess what? Drum roll. I know. Wine. That's what we're going to talk about. Wine. And why not? Um, yep. Um, and then I've got Katie Parla in, who has been 13 or 14 years. She's an American expat living in Italy, in Rome specifically. And we're going to talk about what she does, because she kind of covers the Roman food scene. And I have to say, in the interest of full disclosure, it's like my least favorite city in Italy for food. Um, it's, I can never – unless I'm with, like, insiders – it's like the biggest. It's like it's like someone dropping you in Times Square and saying, "Find a good restaurant." It's like, are you fucking kidding me? They yeah, all suck. Yeah. Well, it's crazy because the the best place can be wedged between two tourist traps. The, that's exactly it's, the point. It's like, so the, the, right? Like it's literally it, completely. Yeah. And that's the so you have to have an insider's guide, otherwise you're doomed. Um, just a shout out, you know the food. So so Monday, Tuesday night, we did a a, a tribute, a tribute. Um, when I first came to New York in 1982, I had a job at the Four Seasons Restaurant. I arrived in January, which is a bad time to arrive in New York looking for work, in 1982. And uh, I was just out of the CIA, so I did what everybody did back then. You typed up what was purported to be your resume. Uh, I had no New York experience. I was from Philly. Um, and I walked around dropping off resumes, hoping to get a job, because my rent was 500 bucks a month, and I had no money. Um, and I took a, like a, a temporary job down at the Vista Hotel, and I told him I wasn't going to stay, but... I had resumes floating, and then I got an offer at the Four Seasons restaurant with Seppi Rankley, so I gave my notice, went to the Four Seasons, worked there for six months doing dinner, and then my girlfriend came home and said um, she was doing her internship at the Maurice restaurant. She said, you know, we just fired two guys for stealing, and they, we need cooks badly, and somehow or other, I don't know how I did this, I went to the Four Seasons and said, hey, can you do me a favor? Like, are you serious, the Four Seasons and so I said, "Could you do me a favor? I have, a, I have another job I'm thinking of taking, but I don't want to leave here. Can I do? Can I do daytime? And can I come in early and leave early?" And somehow they just said yes. And I have no idea how that that would have never happened today. So I, I actually they created like a little. Uh, they used me as an entremetier, same job I was doing at night, but I came in an hour early and like just filled up this bullshit. Filled up the Bay Marie, unlocked the walk-in box, got the trunion kettles boiling, and then I left an hour early and then ran across town to the Maurice and did dinner service. So line cook two restaurants for six months, and then finally Christian offered me the sous chef job. So Christian Delouvrier, I was with him for two and a half years. 
great chef. He went on to work um, at celebrities in New York, most notably at Les Binas after Grey Kuntz, where he earned four stars. The restaurant already had four stars but under Grey, but he did a totally different restaurant, obviously. Grey and Christian were sort of world apart, technique-wise. Um, so... We wanted to do a thank you dinner for Christian at the Beard House. And I say we, it's all the chefs that were Shane McBride, who's the head chef for McNally at all McNally's restaurants. Craig Kiketsu, who's at Fourth Wall. Tomo, a lot of guys came in. Ed Brown, Ed Stone. Corey Lee was going to try and fly in. Juan Cuevas in Puerto Rico. We wanted to do a tribute for him at the Beard House, and we did. So everybody made a course. I emceed, because that should be my role, right? I'm not really a chef these days. Um, used to be. But that night, I didn't realize, like, I was checking my phone because I was at the party. That's the night that the Times of you came out. Holy fuck whoa talk about a slap down i mean that was brutal so the next morning i think i log on wednesday and i tune into the like oh my god per se and it just starts the review i mean you could see what it got and i was like no way and then you just read it it was oh my god i can't imagine what Kel- thomas i just have no idea what it must be like to be part of that organization post tuesday night at five o'clock when that review dropped online and everybody knew it was going on because that's the biggest single demotion of a restaurant I can remember in, like, modern history, period. Like, going back as long as I've been to New York City. So tough. And it's funny because Ryan Sutton at Eater wrote a review last year that was very similar. And I know Ryan. And I was like, I thought he was nuts because I've eaten it, per se, three times. Once, when they first opened in 04, it was amazing. Uh, another time in between that, and my last time there was, like, 08, I think. Um, and we didn't eat in per se. We ate in the salon because I don't know why. Maybe I didn't have the shoelaces or something. But um, but that was an astonishing meal. So I've had three meals there that were just absolutely perfect. I don't know what happened, but that's that's huge news. That was amazing. It is, and people react to it, you know, totally it, one extreme to the other. They either discount critics altogether, or you know, they they say that hey, it's it's lost its pizzazz. But I, there's, I think the middle ground is a little bit more accurate. I would guess because nothing is on the uh, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, when you're when you're at the top for so long, you have a very far space to fall. I mean, it's it's just normal. It's just nature. But uh, if you know, in in terms of gauging his reaction, I would imagine he responded probably in the similar way that Daniel did. You know, Daniel Belude. But did. that was one star. That's four to three. I mean, that's a little tip. Of, that's like knocking a crown askew on your head, but you're still like, I mean. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. No, 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 no. I, I just imagine that he was incredibly supportive and, and kind of probably came in. And from, from the chefs that I know that work there now and have worked for him, I'm sure that nobody lost their jobs over this. I'm Good. Sure I'm this glad was, to hear that. This was a teaching moment. And this Good. was, okay. you know, Good. yeah, he's, he, he strikes me. I've never worked for, for Chef Keller, but he's, he is a, he's a teacher uh, first and foremost and, and a very supportive guy and does an, an amazing amount for the global culinary community behind the scenes that people don't know about. He handwrites letters to people all the time, just you know, personally extending congratulations. When Racine got reviewed in the New York Times um, by Pete Wells, he you know, sent, sent us an email just congratulating us. And oh, he, had, he had only been in twice. It, it's just, you know. Good. All right, good. Well, there you go. Um, so the voice you've been listening to, obviously, I, it kind of set up as Chris Strzok. I met Chris when you were on the floor at Racine. Yep. First time I met you. And you were great. You were fun as hell. I was with my son. You were blind tasting us because every time we go out to eat, he's like so into wine. And we just ask everyone blind taste us so that we can make fools of ourselves or maybe get close on one of them or maybe get something right and be like, whoa, brah. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. It's a fun way to taste wine. And he's he's so into wine. I mean, he actually had, I think one of the highlights of his life so far was he had had dinner with Pascalina and I at Fung 2. And he got to sit next to Pascalina and like just pick 
her brain. So for him, it was like, oh, it's like handing someone a book they can only have for like two hours. You can ask it any question, and it'll give you the answer, but after two hours, it goes away. So yeah. he was with Pascaline. That was fun. <laughs> so you're not with Racine anymore. You're, you're in hiatus, but I, can we talk about where you're going to go? Sure. Yeah. So you're going to end up, you're not at Racine anymore, but you're going to end up, when it finally opens, Rouge Tomat, is, which is where Pascaline hangs her hat officially, uh, closed on f- off of Fifth Avenue a while back. It was supposed to open in Chelsea a while back. Like all things New York, it's delayed. But when it does reopen in March, we hope, April, maybe, we'll see, um, you'll be on the floor. Pascaline is the is the head psalm. She's got a couple of psalms under her. Absolutely, you'll I'll, be like a captain on the floor. I'll be a captain on the floor. I'll be doing some junior psalm stuff. It's just uh, gives me some flexibility with some of the other projects I've going on, and still in grad school, so trying to get that wrapped up. Wait, and, you'll be in that shiny, amazing rainbow-strewn bubble of Pascaline. That's world. I couldn't have said it any better. Yeah, where you'll be tasting wine every day with some of the greatest, one of the greatest tasters ever, one of the greatest explainers ever. Just a walking encyclopedia. I'm ready to get my ass kicked. Yes. Now, you brought a bottle of wine today. So you brought a bottle. I got the two glasses from the bar. We opened it up. I poured it. And clearly, it's an orange wine because, honestly, it's orange. So let's let's start there. So the the <laughs> the uh, orange wine is fine. I take no issue with this phrase. But the, the Georgians, which is where this wine is right. from, um, prefer amber wine because... When you're Georgian and you have a totally different language entirely and you're trying to sell grapes that no one's ever heard of in a market that may not even know that your country exists, let alone makes wine and has been making wine for thousands of Forever, thousands like 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years. Yes. Alice Firings made six trips over there. Yes. I remember she emailed me when she was just coming back from a Georgia wine tasting and I said, peaches? Yes. She said, yeah. Michael, you idiot. The cup. Michael. Oh, sorry. Yep. No, and that's and that's and and a bunch of countries in that area. I mean, that is really the cradle of winemaking. You know, the Caucasus area. Yep. It's it wasn't Georgia at the time, but when you start talking about you know very very established winemaking cultures and now countries like Greece, like Georgia, you have a tremendous amount of diversity and unique uh, profiles in terms of the grapes grown and the terroir. And now it's 2016, you know, you're seeing after all the political messes that they've been going through for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years, you're seeing more capital investment going in to where the technology and the know-how to elevate wines to a crazy awesome quality level um, works in tandem with the uniqueness of what's offered by the by the sense of place. So I'm I'm a huge fan of promoting wines. You know, I, I, I love Burgundy. I love wines from the Loire, um, which is you know, somewhat of a prerequisite for working at Racine and Rouchemont. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, you I, no, and I, I could drink them every day, and I usually do. But uh, but beyond the basics, you know, is where you kind of get to have fun and explore. And you know, both the Greeks and the Georgians have a grape that th- the name of the grape is the grape with no name. You know, so that right there kind of sets the stage for this is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be crazy to wrap your mind around. And depending on like like anywhere in the in the world, you you go to one person, you get one story. You get to go to another person, get another story, and kind of synthesizing that, presenting all the stories, and saying, you know what, you decide. Talk about this wine. So you poured it. I looked at it. We'll call it an amber wine to be uh, to make the Georgians happy. Then <clears throat> I you know put it to my nose, and it's just insane. It is like. Berries, like raspberry, like red berries, like All the high tone berries, super high, almost to the point where it kind of reminds me of like the artificial flavor of berries in candy. It's that pronounced. It's like, it's like straight away, like there is no mistaking this. 
And it's like, it, like what's the like, like that Concord grape, like that jelly, like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's it's incredibly intense, and a lot of that comes from the character of the grape. So it's a, it's a hundred percent ricazzatelli, cazzatelli. Um, it's R K A T S I T E L I. Yeah. Okay. Um, thankfully, yeah. written anglicized on the label, but uh, <laughs> it is the most widely planted white grape in Greece. And uh, it's a, the, the I'm sorry, excuse me, in Georgia. In, in Georgia, thank you. It's not planted in the Greece, to the best of my knowledge. No, in Georgia. Um, and the cool thing uh, about this particular wine style that we're, we're drinking, a lot of traditional Georgians may or may not refer to this as classic style, but it's a good maybe entry into classic style because it's a very clean, pronounced classic style. Uh, it's my, winemaking with risks taken, but calculated risks and done the right way. Um, Georgians are very, very emotional, uh, loving, wonderful, uh, charitable, hospitable people. There is no stranger that goes to Georgia. You immediately become family to, to all that you meet. And it's, it's an absolutely – I've had this experience in other winemaking regions throughout the world, but Georgia is really a really special place. People open up their homes to you. They'll give you – you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very special place. And so the whole idea of winemaking is so ingrained in their culture – it's much like for the French or Italians considered a food. It's, not, it's you know, it's a food. And and you have a little bit of parody um, during the course of, of a meal um, because you have – it's called a supra, the meal. And you have a, a tamada who's the toast master. And throughout the meal, the tamada leads different toasts to different themes. And, you know, in modern times, you drink from glass stemware, but traditionally you drink from a piala, which is a kind of an earthenware bowl. And it's very um, – it's it's for being a, a male dominated culture. They they revere the hell out of women. It's it, women are, are so elevated and honored that you know the the idea of of making wine, especially in this crevry traditional method, which crevry is like amphora, um, but amphora generally wasn't buried in the ground. Um, and it was used for transport originally uh, by the Greeks, and and it didn't have a pointed base. This one does. So you have kind and of this one's buried in the ground. Buried in the ground. So the top of this, we're going to look at this vessel and it's going to be at ground level the actual top where the grape Correct. juice is going to go Correct. with in, with indigenous yeasts so it's just yeah, no, all natural yeah, yes crush gravity into the amphora absolutely or, or which they call Crevry. them mm-hmm. pointed on the bottom and that's done because it maintains temperature the ground's cool absolutely that's so this yeah. is how you did temperature control that's three right. or four thousand years ago they're like what if we dig a deep enough hole and we stick this and they're made of they're earthenware these huge right. earthenware things right so keep going i interrupted you so mm-hmm. so you're talking so they, after, you know, uh, about nine months in the ground. Um, on skin. More often than not, sometimes it's pulled off skin. Sometimes the skins are pulled out, you know, not, not for the whole duration. But the wine will oftentimes come out of the amphora, uh, excuse me, the fevri, um, about at the nine-month period. And, and that's kind of referred to as giving birth to the wine. So if you think about Back the parallels women. between, yeah, yeah, human beings and, and women, you know, this wine wasn't made. This wine, you know, the earth gave birth to this wine. And it's a really beautiful uh, symbolism and very much a part of the day-to-day culture. And is there, are, is there some use of batonage or is it just completely gravity? Uh, there is some, some use of, use of, of some stirring health. things with sticks, yes. Right. Um, and, and, and that, you know aids in the phenolic culture that you see here. I mean, these amber wines tend to be, you know, tannic, more tannic white wines than most other skin wines. Right. So um, it's not, you know, it, it is a food wine. 
at much like you know the French Georgians don't have a history of sitting down just for a glass of wine. It would always come with other food. So um, the idea that you'd have a tannic white is not so crazy because it would go really well with some of the local you know uh, foods with which obviously vary from region to region. But um, what culture? Help me with this. Outside of America. The uh, another America, I guess. What culture just sits in and drinks wine without food? Do they? Is that done anywhere? Um, Germany. They do, huh? Uh, they 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 have. I mean, because there's a lower. I guess maybe Switzerland lower in alcohol. Right. The really pleasant, quaffable kind of those right. whites, those high altitude whites. Because I remember in Switzerland, I had friends that I would visit, and we'd go up into their in the summer. We'd go up into their. The summer home where the cattle grazed in the summer, and there's no plumbing up there. There's no refrigeration. There's just a pump and a well and and uh, an outhouse. And we brought with us like just, I mean, it was three of us, and I think we brought like three cases of wine for four days and finished them. Yeah, that, I mean, the mentality obviously is so different in in really outside of the United States in terms of con- consuming alcohol, especially wine. I was the, my first trip to Italy was with my best friend and his family, and we were in um, Tuscany, and we were sitting in his grandmother's living room it was in the evening time it was kind of before dinner but after late afternoon and we saw somebody kind of stumbling by drunk which is kind of uncharacteristic and you know in the united states you see that and someone's grandmother make make the comment of you know my gosh this person is drunk (laughs) whereas his grandmother made the comment oh this poor boy hasn't had enough to eat (laughs) you know so that's totally you know it's it's very italian that's very italian so in the quivery so and then the color of this grape is going to it's it's is the skin has some color to it. It's it kind of like a, yeah, it has a little bit of color. It's not as dark as this. Right. It's a, it's a it's lighter, but um, yeah, it's a it's a kind of a pale yellow skin color. So you get this nose. I'm telling you, I have have you ever had more berry? I've never ever had a wine that had this much high toned red berry fruit ever. Yeah, it's super high toned. I mean, there's there's a there's a little bit. Uh, this is as I was mentioning to you before the show. The acidity here, there's a little bit of volatile acidity. There's a little bit of VA, but it's um, it, it's much less so than can happen. Because when you're when you're making wine in this minimal intervention sort of way, you're taking a tremendous amount of risks. So um, some vintages, uh, it just doesn't turn out. That's nature. That's life. And, and these are people, in addition to being incredibly um, family-oriented and people-oriented, they're also very God-oriented. Mm-hmm. So some of their strategies, uh, we would visit certain wineries because I went to Georgia uh, two years ago on a, on a wine trip with some really cool people. And uh, we'd be talking to winemakers after tasting the wine, nosing the wine. It's like, yeah, it's a little bit dirty. Um, and this was the exception to the rule. I have to give you know Georgia credit. The, the winemaking has been cleaned up quite a bit. It's, it's really the exception to the rule. But you know, you'd ask them, so how often do you clean your amphora? They said, "Well, uh, it gets cleaned all the time." It's like, how often's all the time? Well, I don't know exactly. God takes care of that. <laughs> so it's like, uh, okay, okay. So you know, clean in a while. Sometimes God is on top of the amphora cleaning. Sometimes he's busy with other things. So busy with other amphora. Yeah, he's apparently, he's got he's got, you know, he's got a lot <laughs> on his right. plate. You got to cut That's him some right. slack. So is is, is, is is there any sulfur in this with the bottling? In this vintage, this is a uh, 2013. Uh, we're in 2015 now. 16. I we are in 2016 now. Thank you. I do believe there was a little bit of sulfur at bottling, bottling, but just 
just like just the minimal minimal amount for stability. Right. Okay. Um, they, that's this contentious thing. I'm. It's still one of those things. Right. Where you talk about dirty wine making and clean wine making and the bio thing. And right. there's that pursuit, that ideal of not sulfuring at all. And, and yeah. in whites, I. It's just such an incredible crapshoot. Yeah. Well, um, in, in, in 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 all wines, I mean, but yeah, whites. I think there's this idea that whites need it more in general, and and there's truth to that. But it, it's it. There's a lot you can control during the winemaking to make that need not as important, and obviously the storage in your in your supply channels to your to your end consumer. Um, I, I remember having uh, lunch with Anne Parent of Domaine Parent and Pomar, really incredible woman. I have tremendous respect for. Um, just a powerhouse of knowledge and and um, enthusiasm for wine and people. And uh, she looked exhausted when I saw her for this lunch in New York. And working the New York market is exhausting yeah. for anyone of any age and any. Um, amount of energy but i said you know are you are you feeling okay you know you, you look a little tired and she goes uh well yeah i landed two days ago so it's a little bit of the jet lag but i also didn't sleep the day before i left i said oh are you, you feeling okay she goes no i was up literally for 20 hours in the lab working with the exact amount of sulfur i needed to use to get these tank samples these barrel samples from france to the u.s just to show for this tasting so it's just it's it's really perfecting that you know an artist is never happy with their work and and you the the idea that you might over sulfur or under sulfur is just such an important part for for showing wines. That is are she not growing organic on the right bank, Saint Julien? She's uh, I'm sorry. Is she growing right? She's. In, in Pomar and Burgundy, yeah. she's... Oh, Pomar, I'm sorry. Yeah. Bur- I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Is, she, is she organic? She is... Uh, I don't know if she's certified. I believe she is certified. Yeah. It's in, it's that's in the right, Wildman I mean, wild portfolio. Tough play. I mean, yeah. there's guys doing it. There's people yeah. that have been doing it for generations. Yeah. I mean, if you really think of it, it's so funny. We're, just, we're getting a little off topic. Well, there isn't getting off no. topic. But when when I think historically about winemaking, like, we let's go to Burgundy. So one of the great, great wine regions on planet Earth, just, you know, terroir... It, on steroids from plot to plot um but the whole idea of of spraying of chemicals and a fertilizer none of that existed before like the mid of the last century so they were really growing doing wines naturally for all of their history until like the 1940s 1950s it, 1960s it was a knee-jerk reaction i think for most of the world you know phylloxera is a pretty serious deal yes. and uh that's scary when you talk about one day having a livelihood and the next day not of course. I mean, it's it's understandable. But I think what's exciting is that um, it's no longer the idea of, you know, minimally spraying and it, what you spraying, you know, because there's not there's spraying and there's spraying. Um, and I think that more and more people are getting on board that this is not just a fad, you know, and and everyone's come to, to collectively hate the term natural wine, I think, because it doesn't mean but it means anything. nothing. That's, right. I know. Sure. It's, begin, it's, like, it's like the term organic and food now. It fucking means nothing. Uh, right. Exactly. So, so, you know, it's it's just like um, I, I, a friend of mine once said to me, it's better. Is it better to know your your. Uh, pay your butcher or pay your doctor you know it's better to if you're serious about drinking wine on a regular basis forge a relationship with whomever you're buying it from that's at every level of the three-tier system you know it's relationships has to sell wine because wine is such a personal beautiful living thing you know assuming there's not too much sulfur um or it's not a cooked wine but um yeah, it's 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 all about relationships, and I in in with friends that I've had moved to the city, and people that have kind of asked me, you know, how do I how do I get started in the New York wine business? Um, I, I reiterate something that was told to me that you, God gave us one mouth and two ears for for a reason that we should talk half as much as we listen, 
So if you're new to New York, and, and I'm guilty of not doing this, I'll, I'll go on the record saying I often talk at least four times as much as I listen, but it's something that I struggle with every day. Um, but, uh, and I think coming from an Italian and French family, that's, that's, that's the case. Yes. That's what I'll blame. But, uh, anyway, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's important to just listen and, and hear about, learn about people. Because learning about people will help you sell the wine. Not only the obvious things like their palettes and, and their, their programs that they're running, but also, you know, it, it's helpful in business to know who's sleeping with who or who has slept with who or who used to work for who and who got fired after working for who. And, you know, that's New York is the smallest city on earth. It's true. I, yeah, I've been here most of my life. And it's, it's, forgive me earlier. You say Pomerol. I know right in my head I was a Pomerol. So, sorry. Another that's region. Okay. of uh, We're going from Bordeaux to Burgundy. We're going from, that's, okay. that's why I'm on the right bank. So I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> but, um, and speaking of like places that sprayed forever, I mean, I mean, you go to some vineyards on the left bank, the old, and it's, it's just like dead city. Like the soil is just, there's nothing there. But nothing, nothing, nothing. You're seeing more of the, of the big crew places. You're seeing, um, more of these chateaus in Burgundy really stepping up and and I don't want to say being the leaders because they're smaller people that have been doing it for longer and better but they're realizing we can make this work you know we're we're big Bordeaux chateau we have the capital to be able to do this transition and in the long term from a business standpoint also from an ecological standpoint it, it just makes sense yeah I, would, I just got back i was there i was there in september for the crush um same time that, that patrick capiello was there same hotel actually mm-hmm. and you're seeing a lot more and a lot, a lot of the young vignerons especially on the right bank mm-hmm. um are just saying you know what let's embrace the land let's do the week we can do this yeah this we is can, not that hard the, the common control the common knowledge seems to be it can't be done bordeaux yeah <laughs> it's like well, it it's challenging. It's yeah. challenging in a lot of places, but it can be done. And let's figure out collectively how to do it and help each other do it better. And that, that's good for everyone. So back to the wine we're drinking. So it's it's this insane high tone fruit of the nose. And I don't know why. It's this, you know, then you always get an ex- expectation of what it's going to deliver. And then in your mouth, it's just it's just austere. It's bone dry. There is no residual sugar. No. <laughs> it's tannic. It's just it's mineral. It's like absolutely perfect food wine. It's everything. It's yeah, bloody it's delicious. Definitely perfect food wine. Is it? Is it a style of wine that I think myself, you, or most of the U.S. would want to drink on a daily basis? Probably not. That's not what we grew up with. That's what our not what our palates are conditioned to. But we, even if I'm having a, a pizza here at Roberta's. I, this is beautiful with some of the pizzas here. I mean, it's it's. If there was a good amount of cheese. I'm not sure tomatoes in this per se. No, 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 no. But right. I mean, like those cheeses, the, those ones with. The, I'm right. thinking like it's they used mushroom. to make the yeah, the, the mushrooms yeah. or the yeah. white cheese or yeah. three or four Taleggio. cheeses. Yeah, yeah Taleggio. It's perfect. Yeah. It's just going to yeah. cut through that like a blade. Yeah, perfect. But it all, it can also hand up to it, it can also stand up to you know heavier meats, darker protein. Yeah, for it's, sure, it, for sure. It's a really versatile wine that I think more and more wine professionals are starting to come to, if not Georgian in style, other regions from Italy that are doing extended skin contact so what did get you into wine what that's whoever you're you were going to go there so go back there again so you came to new york from uh, florida okay more or less a yeah. area well known uh, for viticulture yeah and fine I'm, wine yeah, exactly oh uh, <laughs> um Stop. you know anything's possible <laughs> um no i come from the the panhandle so the lower alabama part of florida redneck riviera i'm you know i didn't suppress my accent intentionally it just kind of happened from moving around the world uh, a little bit as i did uh, during and after school but um my grandmother was french um she was a countess and uh, married my redneck GI grandfather, who's from Texas, after World War II. And then they met in France. She's from at what at the time was Alsace-Lorraine. 
Um, and yeah, right. so she moved to the U.S. when she was uh, 19, had seven kids in 10 years, you know, learned the language as she had to. And uh, I don't know how she did it. You know, uh, there's a joke. I, I love my grandmother dearly. I just want to go on the record saying that. But there's a joke that with every kid, she maybe lost a small piece of her brain, which is totally understandable. Uh, yeah, I've got two and I completely yeah, I don't have a yeah. brain left, so I can blame them. But she's something. she, you know was the reason that I traveled to France a lot as a, as a, a child and as a, a young adult. And um, now I go quite regularly for work and I, I have family all around the country. So when I, I just like yourself was cooking professionally um, in a fine dining restaurant group in Florida and kind of worked my, my way through the ranks, kind of ended up as corporate chef doing everything from a, we, we bottled our own marinade that we sold wholesale and retail. We had cookbooks. We had three restaurants. We had um, a personal catering for kind of high-end celebrity clients. And it was, it, was, um, it was an intense, insane period, and I loved it. But um, this is something that's really near and dear to my heart, having been in both the back of the house and the front of the house. And I admire everything that Danny Meyer is trying to do. I don't know if the way that he's going about it is going to be successful. I wish him the best, and, and at least he's out there trying. He's innovating. He's pushing the limits. He's like, I'm in a position to be able to try and figure this out. Let's let's do it because the the uh, cooks work very 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 hard, very hard. I'm not saying that we don't in the front of the house. We certainly do, but in comparison, when you start talking about cost benefit and hourly wages and don't even get quality of life, I spend I my life so, in the trenches back there. Uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's hard to find, and and don't also get me started on my generation of millennials because it's very easy to excel among my peers. Uh, sadly. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not so impressed. But, um, <laughs> but you're allowed to say that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm a little worried about the future. But I think everyone's generation is worried about the future. Um, so you you get a, a group of entitled young people that grew up in a very good time socioeconomically, and and it after taking their higher education and 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 weighing the pros and the cons to cooking, passion will only carry you so far. Passion has been the excuse used by employers to basically work their people as slaves and it's it's not fair i get that life's not fair if anything cooking taught me that but um it can be more fair it can be more fair and i'm not a socialist in any sense of the word but um i we have to collectively figure it out and if that means nobody's gonna like me after this interview if that means that the front of the house pay structure has to be reassessed and redrawn to make that happen i i personally fully support doing that because it's you what what good is a front of the house staff and selling wine and pouring wine if if you don't keep people there to eat and and that in and of itself is such a art as much as it is a science and and uh and we have to preserve that culture of of dedicated professionals and 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 people that our artists in our industry, you know, it's a really huge issue, and I mean, you touched on it perfectly, I think. And you know, I just, I'm that's my world is the world of chefs. That's what I do for a living these days. Is what I came out of. Those, those are my people, and um, every day I'm bumping into chefs. And first word everyone's out. I don't know how we're going to get through this year. This is going to really be a weird year yeah. because suddenly, suddenly my front of the house expense was seven fifty an hour. My tipped employees making seven fifty an hour. Uh, they're always made so much more than my, my, my cooks do. And then if I, if I, if I offer them like a management job and then they say like, so what do you pay me to be, um, 65 grand. Fuck that. Yeah. I make more than yeah. that now walking the floor. Yeah. No way. No, no way. exactly. Exactly. So they're yeah. the, Why, we have so many people with management backgrounds that after doing management for a year or two or three, it didn't make sense financially to do it. Right. Put you you're back on the floor. Double the hours. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to go back in the tip pool. Yeah. You know? So yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. We've got to figure it out collectively and. New York's a good place to, to test run things. Um, 
It's going to be an interesting year, man. It, I'm it a little will. nervous. I'm We're just, still, as an industry... That Florence Fabricant opening and close thing that she does every Wednesday, I'm just yeah. so worried about, as we get into June and through the summer, to see how that closed thing becomes more expansive, and I'm just cringing thinking about it. It's it's going to hit the small people first that yeah. can't absorb it. And, yeah. you know, I, I encourage... Uh, and the kind of... I know we, we're short on time, but... Uh, I still love New York. I've, I've been here three years now. I'm 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 jaded, but I was jaded before I got here. So I I appreciate New York for all the things it is. We are able to find these really awesome, obscure, crazy wines, as well as the really awesome, obscure, um, very high profile unicorn wines, if you will, uh, in the same stores here. And and in terms of educating myself and and my colleagues educating themselves it's it's really the easiest place to learn about wine we're we're incredibly blessed here and and with the wealth of knowledge we have we have a tremendous culture of mentorship here that that we struggle to find outside of new york in the united states especially but um we it's just really a, a tour de force and with this private collections thing with these this uh legislation that's that's pending in albany we threaten the incredible not only dining but working culture of food and wine if if this is to happen. I don't like to get political, especially not you know, it's on the air, but this is this is something that if you're not familiar with it, educate yourself on it because yeah. if you are running a restaurant that has old wine or has had old wine, it's it's a big deal. The conversation will continue. Chris Struck, thanks so much for coming on and maybe if we're lucky in a perfect world before you guys Open up. We'll get you back. Stoked to be here. Thank you. I definitely want to get Pascaline back. We had the chef in, Andrew. Yeah. Great guy. Andy, he was was the old place. I remember he was the chef de cuisine at that time. Um, Thanks so much. Chris Struck, best of luck. Always a pleasure. Um, Cheers, man. Yeah, through the email things. I want to know when you're pouring wine at 10 Bills because I live right down the street. So when you're you're at the bar, let me know. So I can crash there after after my show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a studio, man. I got a sofa. All right. Be good. Chris Strzok's my guest. Um, Katie Parlow will be next in just a minute. Stay tuned. We're going to talk all about the food scene in Rome. And you'll want to listen because the food scene in Rome is crazy. If you don't know someone that knows the scene in Rome, you are doomed going there as a tourist. So stay tuned for that right after this. She's a old female, that's why I like her, I like her a lot And she don't know that she's her own female She's her own female and she don't know, that's why I like her a lot I got a cab to the cafe to play the charming young man That's when she told me, tie me up and cuff me to the window. You know how I like the rip tie. Hey folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I actually use at home? 
that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. So if you listen to the show, you know I am a wine lover. We get sommeliers here all the time. We get winemakers. I've been drinking wine with dinner since before most of you were born. And when you think of the great wine regions of the world, I mean, what comes to mind? Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Piedmont? Yeah, okay. Well, I just got back from Bordeaux. Was there for the crush for the 2015 harvest. And I was thrilled to see, A, how the city of Bordeaux has transformed itself. It's so alive. It's so beautiful. And the region itself is crazy. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons who are coming in, and they're not making your grandfather's Bordeaux anymore. Young farmers, young vignerons that have been there for generations, that know the soil, that know the grapes, and what grapes are we talking about? Mm, you know, we're pretty familiar here. Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, all of those grapes find themselves in these blends. But the new style of Bordeaux wines are super fresh, super young, super clean, meant to be consumed now, not cellared for decades, because really, who has a cellar? The whites are super great. I think they're super undervalued and appreciated. Semillon, Sauvignon Blanc, crisp, dry, all stainless. If there's a little oak integration, you barely feel it. And the reds come in all sorts of styles. You know, the left bank is a little more Cabernet Sauvignon heavy, a little more structured, a little more tannic. The right bank with more Merlot tends to be fruity, a little more opened up, receives you a little bit easier. But if you've been walking past that Bordeaux aisle in your wine store, stop and grab a bottle. From $15 to $35 is some of the best value on planet Earth with wines that are growing in one of the great wine regions, vignerons that are passionate, they know what they're doing. Give Bordeaux a second shot. I love the wines. Hey, welcome back. Michael Meko here. Food Talks, the show. Heritage Radio is the network. Katie Parla is my guest. So, Katie Parla, welcome to Heritage. But you've been here. You've been here before, which is it's great. It's great to be back, Michael Meko. It's fun to be out here in Williamsburg. It's never Always. ceases to amaze me. This place. Um, so, we're going to dive right into what you do, but then I'm, then I want to roll the lens back Let's to figure it. out how you got there. So, how would you describe what you're doing now? You're kind of you're, you're an American expat, been mm-hmm. living in Italy for 13 years. Yeah, today's my 13 year anniversary. Anniversary, but you're here. Hooray. That's all right. I'm, but yeah, so, Rome's Rome's the base. Rome is the home base. Has been 
uh, for a baker's dozen of years. And, you, and so what do you, do you you've written book, blog, food tours. Tell me about what you do for like gainful yeah, employment. I mean, How do you make I mean, that work? I do a lot of food oriented things like events and curated meals and cocktail seminars. But I guess the like job, like the paying gigs <laughs> are tours. And um, I write a lot about food for various publications, including Punch and um, Sever and, and all these wonderful food and food and beverage um, pub. So that's uh, that's what I do. I've got a cookbook coming out too. So I'm sort of adding that to the stable of things that will stress me out for life. So before you were in the studio and I, the microphone was hot and I think I was talking to Chris, I said, you know, it's funny because Rome, I've been to Italy a bunch um, and usually you always seem to fly into Rome. I mean, I had a direct flight to Palermo through an airline that Meridiana, so but they only do that. They oh, only Meridi- do it from those like direct flights May. were Yeah, they're like six days a year. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're like every, it's whatever it is, but it's only like spring to the fall. Um, so you always go through Rome, and I've stayed in Rome a lot, and I have, in all honesty, I have found it to be one of the most annoying towns to eat in. Accurate. The same way, the same way that New York would be if you come unprepared and you don't have an insider so you arrive to new york you're staying at your hotel say the marriott marquis and your neighborhood is times square and you're you just are there's a deluge of just mediocrity everywhere you go there's bubba gumps there's chain restaurants there's shit there's lousy i mean it's just like and i found rome to be much the same way because it's a big city it's a super touristy city it's an international city Mm -hmm. um and you really have to have somebody inside. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you what you encounter there are both the very obvious shitty tourist tracks that are traps that are red flagging the minute you walk past them, and then you have a lot of places that look very charming and classic. Maybe you've even been to these places before, and they are terrible. But people go there because they're in the center. They provide atmosphere. And they're busy. Like if you let's they're. Say- Busy. Right, so you're looking, because that's the other thing, like, let's say, is it busy? And we can't tell if exactly, they say, oh, go where the Romans go. How the hell do I know if there's a Romans Look, eating Roman, there? Romans are like human people. They don't always have the best palates, or they're not always going to places because they're desperate for uh, the highest quality of a certain thing. Um, Rome has been, like, devastated by the terrible economics of the past decade and a half. Um, there's 43% youth unemployment. When people go out, they want to no forget about that stuff. In yeah. Rome, and there's they 43% youth unemployment. Yeah. Oh, and it, it's a national figure. So this is really, really Higher crippling. than Spain. Like, way higher than Spain. So Spain and Italy sort of compete. Sometimes Spain's like 41, for, for then it goes back up. <laughs> for a horrible place so to be is, if you're young? Yeah, so if, uh, to not be when you're 30 or under. <laughs> um, to avoid if you're a young person. So, I mean, you have all of these opportunities to eat great food. So that's the silver lining. There are these incredible places. You you usually have to go to these places for specific dishes, the things that they're great at, um, and avoid all of the other things on the menu. And there really are very few places that do everything sort of well. Um, one of them is this amazing street food stall called Mordievai. It's new by Rome standards. It opened in 2012. It's owned by a family um, who were butchers, and then they retired and decided to return to the workforce, and they make delicious sandwiches with Roman flavors really, really thoughtfully, but they're like, you know, they're selling sandwiches for three bucks. You're not sitting down. There are no tablecloths. It's messy. It, you know, it's a place that just asks for food stains, but it's so like genuine. The flavors are great. That for me is the sort of quintessential Roman dining experience because you don't have to spend a lot of money. So you're sort of experiencing Rome as, as a local. Um, and the food isn't creative. It's not really go pushing boundaries for the sake of pushing boundaries. All they're doing there is just taking something you would normally pay 12 bucks for at a restaurant and slapping on some bread. Well, to your pushing boundaries point, I mean, we've 
so I'm an old guy that's cooked all my life and you know read the Michelin guides and traveled to Europe a lot and used to use Michelin for Europe. It was particularly helpful sometimes in France, I guess. But in it was France, funny yeah. because it's funny. The more elevated restaurants, not just in Rome, but throughout Italy, the restaurants had started to garner like one star and two stars and three stars. I would find those were my least favorite restaurants to eat at in Italy oh, because be such nightmares. It's because the food it was almost like it was you were like the great meals I would have in Italy would be those real so you're traveling with your girlfriend and you're driving your rented Fiat down the road and you're starving and you stop at some place next to a gas station between where you were going in the middle of nowhere and there's like a nonna with an apron and she comes out and there's a really little menu and then the food starts to come out and it's fucking amazing yeah it's like the best porcini it's like the best zucchini it's like the best little vongole with it's like what the it's like those hole in the walls would blow me away and then the money that we'd blow on like the michelin two stars would be like this just sucks this is not even italian food is is it kind of still like that throughout italy i mean i can definitely say that there are a lot of places with michelin stars which people still go by the Michelin Guide has to sell books and stuff. Well, that's what they are. Know? That's all they are. Once they came, <laughs> when they came to America, I was here for the launch, and I was like, oh, fuck, this is like a global brand. And their of first course. edition of the New York thing was completely shittable. I it was mean, a joke. I mean, so they're not, so hol- they're in the they're not holding... Exactly. And they're yeah. not holding Italian restaurants the same standards that they're holding French restaurants, and one simply needs to do like a very superficial research and visit places in both countries to see where the criteria are. So I think that there are chefs that are doing really, really wonderful things. I love going to Osteria Francescana, of course, like this place in Modena, which is super famous. Everyone knows um, Botura. And his super traditional dishes are fucking spectacular because they're not pushing some ridiculous boundary they're staying within the sort of parameters of the local flavors, the territory, seasonal products, quality. Of course, they're too modern for a lot of the Modenesi because they're not what Nona is making. But you know what? Nona is going away soon. And I'm real sorry about that. I feel terrible about that. But we need to have realistic conversations about Italy because this is not the place that we have this like romantic stereotype that's not going to survive. And as soon as we start talking about this place as an actual like destination with real people, with real businesses, then I think we can start um, as sort of like a, a visiting population, start having conversations about what really is good and what's terrible. And maybe the terrible things can go away and make room for more delicious Did stuff. Did you ever get a chance to read a Canberra Rosso when Fulvio was in the kitchen? Pierangelini? Yes. Good? Uh, Did you in, like it? Inconsistent. Inconsistent, huh? Yeah. Okay. I, I just I just met him this summer. I never. I, I mean, never he's a Cambaro. he's a genius. Like he's so incredible. Yeah, um, as eccentric as can be. Completely, and you know he's he's super super talented, and like currently, um, I believe he's still consulting at the Hotel de Russie. Yeah, Rocco Forte. Um, and yeah, but I mean, that's not for me. That's not food that I can eat every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do sort of have to eat like every seventy or ninety minutes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think. For me and for a lot of Romans and and for visitors, like we're we're after the flavors that really like cut to the heart of of the place. Like I want to taste food that tastes like it's from Rome, yeah. and that hasn't just been sort of transformed into some foams with some like ambiguous flavors for no particular reason than to do something that looks cool. Because it is a super. I mean, the one great thing about Italy, the one and not what you know, I say this because. When we talk about Italy, it's really a weird conversation because it's not really even a country. It's younger than America. It's 23 fiefdoms that kind of hate each other. There's just this history of there is no commonality to any of it. It has a lot of coastline. That's not not true. Everybody in the entire country is obsessed with digestion. 
Tai Chi. <laughs> I forgot. So you stand corrected. <laughs> there you go. That's the one commonality. But but they're food. But no matter where you go, they are all food obsessed people. It's it's a really I, remarkably food obsessed culture. I would say that certainly to some ex- to some extent for some people that's true. But I I repeat like it is a value driven society. That is the reason that there is like really skyrocketing childhood obesity. Um, why? Uh, supermarkets are so popular like you can go to a market if you have a lot of free time and get like some good stuff or you can go to the supermarket and get really abysmal produce and when i go to my supermarket um in rome in rome i'm one of the few people buying ingredients to make something everyone else is buying things that are partially or totally prepared you know this is true in france too you must i mean this is this is true all over europe it's sad it's like this american hegemonic it's cultural imperialism at its best, but it also, worst, I think, yeah. in a very... I mean, this is... I sort of I have a lot of tension about this topic because I feel like the reason that, that it is the way it is because Italian consumer culture puts a lot of responsibility on women to do the shopping. And, like, in order to live in Rome, you sort of need, like, two incomes. Um, and so women now have, like, dignity and jobs and, like, independence. And I think that's a huge improvement with respect to, like, the 70s and earlier. But... We're also losing something. And when people talk about their favorite dish, they don't say, it's my mom's pasta. This is my granny's pasta. And mm. I think that's very telling. Mm. So you had, um, I was looking at some snippets online to do my homework because I don't know you. And um, and you had mentioned, I forget the neighborhood, but so I think one of the last times I was in Rome, I was we were doing a whole tour. We started in Rome, but we ended up going north into Umbria. Um, awesome. And one of my Sherpas was Lou DePaolo from DePaolo's on Grand Street. Lou's totally on Sammy. Awesome, and Lou kind of set up an itinerary for us, which is great because that's what I needed. If I'm in Rome, I don't have a minute to waste. I have a camera crew that's with me. I need to know what's good and what isn't. And I, I don't have days to to do that discovery myself. Uh, and so we went to that place, Armando on the Pantheon or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. And that's like a perfect example of that. What is that neighborhood called? So, I mean, they just call it Pantheon, but it's it's more sort of generically Centro Storico or Campo Marzio, referencing referencing the ancient Roman name for that area, the Campus Martius. Um, and it's super touristy. It is. So this is the thing. It has 32 seats and locals is don't. A, is it a dad and daughter? It's a dad. Well, so it's two brothers. Two brothers. Yeah. Claudio Gargiulo okay. and his brother Fabrizio. Okay. Um, and then it's tiny. It's like. I mean, I don't know. I actually am terrible at, at guessing dimensions. I won't bother. But it's tiny. It's tiny. It's a tiny place. It's like it's, it's not quite a hole a in the wall. Next to a bunch of other restaurants. There's like next a, to a, bunch of a other row res- of other restaurants. It's that all literally suck. 120 feet from the Pantheon, and it's but it's a family operation. It's now they're not um, the third generation is working there. Armando established the place in the early 60s. Um, his son, his sons took over. Their kids work there, um, and that is that is for me one of the most important places for food in Central Rome. Um, it's not always flawless. But they're super hardworking people. Um, they don't put you know artichokes on the menu twelve months out of the right, year because right. people ask for them. And they're really committed to like pretty good wine service, good quality. But it's hard to get in, and it's very touristy. And the reason is Romans traditionally like they just go to their local and they just walk in. They don't make a booking. That's really uncommon. So naturally, if you're flying across the ocean and you have spent a lot of money on your trip, you probably want to make sure you have a table somewhere that someone recommended. And Armando has so many accolades. Of course, it's going to feel touristy. But they don't, I mean, they don't necessarily exploit that feature of their business. And they've had, you know, they started out like, I love, I love the story of this place. They started out as um, sort of like a tavern. And when you walked in, 
instead of having like all the tables set with tablecloths, one side just had like long wooden tables. And that wooden table was reserved for the Sardinian shepherds, these like the day laborers who didn't get jobs. And the Pantheon used to be the place where the, all the shepherds in the 60s would go and hang around and wait for someone to pick them up. And if they didn't get a gig that day, they'd go to Armando and they'd buy beer and they'd drink so much beer. Um, and uh, so they would go through like, you know, um, 50 liters of uh, of beer um, one round after the other. It was a drunken, raucous place on one side. On the other side, it was like a simple Trattoria-like place. And now it's evolved into something different, mm. but but not in a way that's sort of like pushing modernity for the sake of it they're still trying to stay you know bound to their roots and i i just i adore that i think we went to cafe saint eustache is that nearby yeah this is sick great really great yeah that's a super historic place the zinc bar um is the same from and they still and they're still buying beans and roasting them in the back in that copper kettle and yeah i mean that's one of the only places in rome that has any sense of sourcing at all um, and certainly one of the few that does any roasting on site yeah, I was really, really impressed. I mean, that was just really, really like talk about small batch artisanal. Yeah, like fuck, that was the best espresso. Yeah, I mean, you go there like, like go- three days a week. The guys roasting in the back, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, I have people all the time that go to Europe that ask me for recommendations. Do you have? If you, do you have a website? Do you have a place? Yeah. So you do you have a, a, like an information, like like curated lists of places that you love. Oh hell yeah, I have. Um, all sorts of free resources on my blog, which is called parlafood.com. So P-P-A-R-L-A food, no... Exactly. No spaces, dot com. No, no hyphens, no underscores. Parlafood.com. Exactly. And, and then, that's your last name. That's my last name. Yes. And that is sort of a portal to like my blog posts, which have roundups of great things. And then my site, which is katieparla.com, also has my articles, which I write for various publications. Um, I've been focusing a lot on, on drinking culture lately, because I think a lot of the really valid new openings are focused on Italian craft beer or some natural wines or cocktails. And there aren't really that many great interesting restaurants that have opened re- recently. Um, but nevertheless, uh, people send me like tweets all the time. They write on my Instagram or send me emails and I always reply. Like I never say, buy my buy my app or buy my products. I'm like, here are some places that I like. And if you want more resources, here's a bunch of other free shit. And then I also have this app called Katie Parlor's Rome, mm-hmm. which lists all of these great places that I constantly vet. And it or updates in real time. So when things start to suck, I take them out of the app. You've been in the city for a, a week. You've been busy as hell. And I was thrilled to see a couple of nights ago. I, um, I know Red. She does the wine she's for Sasanta. She's such a badass. She's such a badass. So I've known her. She's been working on the floor of New York. I mean, I think I met her at Babo or Del Posto or she was at Mineta. I met her at yeah. all of the above, all of the above restaurants. She's so cool. She's an actress. She's has this wonderful spirit about her. And, and she landed this gig doing the wine, even though she's not a Psalm and does not pretend to be. Um, at Sasanto, which is this wonderful restaurant in this kind of hip yeah. hotel in, in Soho, so you're doing an event there for with Roman food, and you know, I, I guess it was in, it was on. I don't follow Frank Bruni, but obviously a lot of people do, and why not? Um, the ex food critic of the New York Times, man about town, cool, cool, cool. But I, I don't know if it was Instagram or Twitter, but he, he was at your dinner. Yeah, uh, how cool that is was... that? The New York Times ex New York Times food critic somehow heard about this meal, came down, took the night out, and, and to do that for you. Yeah, I not mean, for I was, you. But... I was very, I was very surprised, and that was really super cool. But remember, Frank was the Rome bureau chief. That's where he lived, correct? Um, for two years, and That's I, actually, true. I've been like constantly inviting him to, to my events for a long time. So this, I had not invited him to this, but uh, but he made a reservation, came with friends, and that was that was really cool. Um, and it was fun to be able to show him and a lot of other people sort of what is cool in the Italian wine world 
because Sisanta, in spite of like having a very deep South-oriented wine list, they also have some great stuff from Lazio, which doesn't usually. So make what it is talk about that? Because we have a lot of. I mean, you know, I can't talk about food without talking about wine. It's as all I've ever done my whole life. Um, like red, I don't pretend to be. I don't have that kind of a mind, so I'm not going to be able to recap the you know what I drank even three weeks ago. Or oh, I don't these remember va- but it, anything. But the, <laughs> but the pleasure of drinking wine with food and my love for wine is unabashedly. Yeah. it's it, who kind of who I am. So I, a lot of some friends like Chris that I met through Pascaline and and this is so like he was saying, New York's a small town, but it's a huge city, but a small town. So talk about the Italian wine scene because it's really like so much of the world, like like. Take the Loire Valley or Languedoc Roussillon or you know Sicily or Spain or Portugal. These are there were these were areas that were making pr- a lot of mediocre wine mm-hmm. in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. There was yeah. just a lot of shit going on. Yeah. And in the last fifteen years or maybe twenty, the Italian wine scene just turned around. It's gotten so so good. Yeah. Young vigneron or whatever they call them in Italian. Vinaioli. Thank you. You can say right, that. You can go. say that. <laughs> so, talk about some of the stuff that you've seen that you're stoked about. I mean, and in anywhere from 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 um, from the north uh, to Sicily to the boot to wherever. I mean, I'm I'm generally really psyched about any any producer that um, really wants to focus on indigenous grapes and transforming them in in a of, palatable way. Of which Italy has over 2000 several thousand yeah, yeah i mean there are so many and you know lots i'll talk about lazio because that that's a region that i think is provides really great value so for tell wine. Us where so for those of us who have the map of it where yeah. is lazio Lazio's south central so okay. it is the the region or sort of the state uh, of which rome is the capital it's in the center it's got a really long coast with the Trinian sea yeah. borders on the apennines yeah. so you got really diverse terrain um and then in the southern part when we get to the north molise to the south um, Umbria to the north, north Umbria and Tuscany to the north, north. and then Campania to the south. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's in the middle of the peninsula yep. and it's a place that has had wine production for like 3000 years because the Etruscans, uh, grew wine or I shouldn't say they grew wine; they grew grapes. Um, and, uh, and then the Romans continued and the Romans were really obviously responsible for spreading viticulture all over the all world, over yep, the world um, yep. even to the UK, which is kind of amazing and still thriving. Um, especially in the Southeast. So the, like the wine of Lazio always sold. Let's generally speaking, the wines of Lazio always sold because there was always a population in Rome. It might not have been huge in the Middle Ages, but I mean, by let's see when Rome's population really starts to boom again in the fascist era, there are 1.4 million people in Rome. They're all drinking wine, not because they want to drink something delicious or local. It's because they need calories. Um, and so they sort of treat wine as a food source, as a source of calories. Um, and there was a lot of bulk wine. And as the sort of national wine industry modernizes and the DOCs and DOCG laws are created, mm. um, Lazio starts to forget its roots and gears itself more towards mass production. Um, you see a lot of the old uh, indigenous grape vines pulled up and replaced with Petit Verdot, which actually in some parts of Lazio really excels. Um, and other, uh, you know, all these international varieties Correct. that are easier to market right. than Cesanese or Passerina uh, or like any number of these uh, sort of lesser known grapes. Um, and certainly like the wine that's most associated with Rome is um, Frascati. Uh, but I don't think that the Frascati wines, which are these like Trebbiano, uh, Malvasia blends, are, are the even the most exciting examples of those two grapes being combined. And there are some gorgeous realities in the wine world, especially up in the north, the old Etruscan zones, um, bordering on, on Tuscany and, and Umbria, where you have these like sort of 
field blends that are um, subjected to long skin contact and like you get white wines that are meant to age. So the exact opposite what you, of what you expect from local wines from Lazio. Um, and then there's another, um, there's a really great producer. I served, um, I served his, um, uh, white Aliatigo at, uh, at Sasanta called Andrea Occhipinti. So everyone knows about the wonderful Ariana Occhipinti yeah. in Sicily. Andrea Occhipinti, um, yeah, is on this like okay. crazy volcano. Well, it's not a volcano anymore. It went extinct 50,000 years family? ago, but no, I actually, I don't think they're related, okay. uh, but it is, it's curious that these two natural wine producers have the same last name. Um, and Andrea grows, um, grapes in this like huge crater overlooking like a very deep volcanic lake. And there's some great winemakers up there. Um, including this really spectacularly awesome young woman um, called Joy Cool, and her uh, vineyard's called La Vilana, and she's like buddies with all of the old farmers. So she has been able to rent land and get access to really, really ancient vines um, that she doesn't need to plant these vines. She doesn't need to maintain them because they've been maintained for decades by the same and sort of old farmers varietal, who don't have the energy to, to the tend them. The is what? So she's working a lot with a variety of like, um, uh, oh crap, what is it called in, uh, Procanico. So it's a type of Trebbiano, Trebbiano Toscano. Um, and so she makes, um, a lot of Procanico and hopefully we'll be able to get her wines here in imminently. Her first vintage was, uh, last year. If she's great, they'll find a way. I mean, New York's just we're so lucky we there's just there's a i think in the last 20 25 years there's been certainly in the last 15 it's accelerated just a group of importers committed to going to europe yeah. to tasting to working with small producers to getting as much of that and then coming back here and you know i mean you've been here for a week or two i mean and you must hear from everybody it's like, it's like an embarrassment of riches yeah. what's available to us in the restaurants what's yeah. available to us in retail stores it's spectacular it's ridiculous yeah. so my french friends come over and they're you know we'll take them to chamber street and they're like are you fucking kidding me oh, i can't buy this wine in france mm -hmm. how is it on chamber street i can't buy how is it here it's it's just well i mean that speaks to the fact that there's a market that there's not much of a market locally for some of these things like the Aliatigo, um, which is a red grape made into a white wine, for example, that uh, Andrea Cupinti makes, like you can't find that in Rome. It's only here. <laughs> it's crazy. Thanks so much for coming on. So one more time, shout out for your website. And I'm, I'm going to write it down, too, if I didn't already. So um, just my website is katieparla.com. Kat my Katie blog is parlafood.com. You can find all my info there, as well as updates on my forthcoming cookbook, which is called Tasting Rome, out March 29th, available where books are sold. <laughs> Will you be touring for the book? Absolutely. Get your publisher to send me a, book, a copy sure and come back in before. I only do the show through June, then I take the summers off because I'm Italian. Right on. July I, and August. I approve. Go to the beach and say goodbye, New York. I hope it's the Jersey Shore. Cape May. Yes. Cape <laughs> May. Sud Jersey. Way sud, as soon as it goes. Um, Katie Power, thanks so much for coming on. A and pleasure. folks, if you're listening, seriously, like uh, Rome is the most annoying place to me in a way. In terms of eating, because you really, if you not, if you don't have a local to help you, you are so up shit's creek without a paddle. True. Use Katie. Use her as a resource. Go to her website. Pick that brain. That's what she's been doing. Thanks for coming on. Stay tuned. I don't. I, I have somebody booked for next week, but I never write it down, so I can't really ever prompt my shows <laughs> properly. But it'll be a good one, like like the other ones have been. Stay Ciao. tuned. Food talk next week. Ciao. See you next week. Be well, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.